Welcome to Wage of Cinema, I'm Jack. I'm Andrew. And boy, oh boy, we are, can you believe it, a hundred episodes into this podcast. We made it! I Love Lucy? Was that I Love Lucy? It sounds very, like, celebratory type music. I don't know. Okay. All right. Point is... 100 episodes. I should have done You're the Honeymooners welcome. theme. So thank you uh, for everybody around the world who has listened to our podcast. Uh, yeah. You know, because I, I look at, uh, I've checked on SoundCloud at, uh, at, at, the, at the people who, you know, check out our show. And we have uh, people from all over the world who listen to us. Uh, I mean, for example, our uh, we have a faithful listener uh, who's messaged us, Pedro Sebastian Rojas. Yeah, Pedro. Um, yeah, he's from uh, he, he's from another country, I think Chile, maybe. Um, now I feel embarrassed that I'm forgetting, but sorry. Take two, take two. Uh, no, uh, but they're also just people in like China and Taiwan and Australia and the UK and um, and if you you know again we 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 thank you so much for for listening to us and uh, if you subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes, that's great. Uh, as we've talked about in the past, if you really like our show and want to support us, you can always write us a review on iTunes. That, that helps with our presence. You can also write reviews as well on Facebook because that also is now a thing that you can. That we have like a there's like a star rating system on that and writing reviews because we are uh, your faithful podcast host now going on three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. But, uh, and actually to start off our 100th episode, uh, we're going to read a question that we got on Facebook, uh, from Mr. Gabe Rodriguez, who, uh, thank you, Gabe, for asking us a question again. We've, we, we've gotten questions from you before and always like hearing from you. I Um, hereby give you the rank of question, man. Yes. Not better than the question. Yes. Because that's an actual character who, you know, we don't want the ghost of Steve Ditko to, uh like come after us or something comic book ghosts are the worst <laughs> no they're so nerdy and angsty and you know like got their, I, I their, their hands a, are covered in ink i once had a jack kirby ghost in my basement was not pretty <laughs> he was just constantly smashing and making declarative silver surfer statements yes all right um so anyway gabe posted uh, on our wall and said question for a possible future episode if you haven't already covered it uh, what are the most faithful book-to-film adaptations you've ever seen? Corey might be a good guest star, since I know she's an avid reader. To Kill a Mockingbird might be my top choice. Well, thank you, Gabe, and thanks for not thinking that we are avid re- readers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Corey no, is no, 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 Corey I'm, is I'm, the I'm, most I'm fucking avid with you. reader, I think, of of the group of us i feel like you read a lot i read a lot i don't i'm but you know i don't know i i'm willing to give your wife uh, i i appreciate i'm sure she appreciates I, i'm sure she appreciates the compliment that that you meant by that because yeah she like she's she's the type of reader that will you know like the the bergen county library system like they like the loan interlibrary loan thing that they have you're allowed to take out like 50 books at a time yeah. she's now at her limit <laughs> she but, has a problem but but she's but she's also a very fast reader like like just like this past weekend she read three books in a day yeah three my god like the the mind reels i mean i mean they weren't like war and peace or anything but 
you know, it's still three books. I'm War and Peace, by the way, a book I have not read and a movie I have not seen. Yes, I actually haven't either. And uh, now I'm just thinking. I, I remember a joke from oh, in the the Peanuts movie, yeah. uh, they had a War and Peace joke, didn't they? Uh, Leo's Toy Store by War and Peace. Yes, War and Peace. I. I was like, I, I, it wasn't like there were a lot of people in the theater when I saw that movie, but I was like, I, I laughed out loud at that. Hmm. But, but going back to Gabe's question, um, well, we... It's a, it's a kind of a tough question because, you know, we don't always read the books that movies are based on. I could and, give a couple and, of... the, and a lot of the books we read don't necessarily become movies. There are a few that come to mind. I could think of one off the top of my head. All right, what is it? Rosemary's Baby. Oh, you've read Rosemary's Baby. I have, yes. And oh. uh, I, I, yeah, I read that a couple years ago. Um, and that was actually a case where, kind of famously, uh, Rome Polanski actually followed the book, like, intensely closely. Like, because that was, I think, his first Hollywood movie. And he mm-hmm. thought, he, I guess, supposedly he didn't know, like, how it's done that you can, you know, change things yeah. from the book. And, I mean, you know, it's it's a fantastic book. But he went to the length of actually like calling up Ira Levin, the, the author, and, and asking him questions about, like, so, so what issue was that copy of New Yorker in that one scene that, that in, in the, the apartment? And he's like, I don't know, I just made it up. What do you mean he don't <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And so if you ever read Rosemary's Baby, the book, after you've seen the film, it's like 99% close. I mean, obviously, you can't get down some of the, like internal dialogue because that's always going to be difficult to to adapt um i have another thing i could think of but do you do you have a possible thought i'm trying to go through all the books i've read that also became movies because it's a there are you know it's i mean we could maybe that i mean that could be an interesting episode to look at just also like famous adaptations of things but then that's but that's like so many films out there and then oh yeah i know maybe faithful book to film would distinguish it from because we've done the comic book uh, episodes. I'm v- I'm much more interested in, in creative adaptations of books. The one that stands. At the so you w- mean the ones that aren't faithful? Well, n- n- not necessarily. Right when you come to great for me, great apt- adaptations are movies that that capture the spirit of the book while mixing a lot of stuff around. Well, I mean, the one that comes to mind is Scott Pilgrim versus the world, which really, which takes a seven volume comp like graphic novel and distills it into a fantastic movie, which wasn't even in the series. Wasn't even done when they were making the movie. Right. It had that advantage mm-hmm. where, where Brian and Leo Malley and, and, uh, it was kind of like his Akira. Yeah, <laughs> Brian Lee O'Malley and what's his name? Um, Edgar, Edgar Wright. Wright. Thank you. Uh, you know they were able to come together and say, "Well, this is what I have planned," and this, and they were like, "Well, this is what I want to do in the movie," and then they kind of did the thing. And you know there are differences, but you know if you, you can read that graphic novel series and yeah. then you can re- see the movie, and you'll be happy with both. Well, they're the, both fantastic. Well, speaking of that, I mean the one that comes to mind with what you're talking about, but um, as far as faithful, like Watchmen comes to mind. Well, I haven't seen Watchmen yet. Ooh. Yeah. That would be interesting as uh, something that you should check out at some I, I, point. Again, it's that was on my list because, you know, I've always been looking for like comic book movies to watch. Uh, that seems like one of the big ones, I think, that you would check yeah, out. Yeah, but it's something I just keep forgetting about. Mm, in- really? Yeah, because, you know, Watchmen, I read Watchmen and I, and I liked it. Yeah. But it's not like I was ever like, 
I'm obsessed with Watchmen or this mm. is this is the thing I have to study. Uh, you know, not because it's I didn't like it or because I don't think it's good. It's just, you know, yeah. I read it, liked it, and now I moved on. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, because I, for me, when I, I... I think maybe I read it finally when I had heard... I think I first heard they were going to make a new movie, and that also coincided with when I was getting into comic books or trying to get back into them, and I had heard the name Watchmen. Uh, and this was a couple years before the movie came out. And when I read the book, I realized, oh, okay, yeah, this is... This is fantastic, and I'm going to now. I'm really going to get into comic books now again. Yeah. Like I'm really going to dedicate myself to making this part of my reading diet. And it's it's uh, and the movie, like again, Zack Snyder. That was a case where almost like Rome Polanski, he felt like this is such like gigantic source material that I must be so faithful. And and the pro that actually gave him some uh, backlash because he. It went the other way where, you know, because people for a lot of years were trying to adapt the, the book. And yeah. it was and Alan like... And Moore, of course, said, don't do it. Well, he, he, well, he said that about everything that, he, that that's come out. Like, right. he, uh, he famously... Actually, his name isn't even on the Watchmen movie. No. Like, he decided, I want my name taken off this. Um, and when Alan Moore, one of the scariest men <laughs> in existence, asks for something, you give it to him and hope he goes away. Oh, my God. This is just a total tangent, but... So I know that technically uh, Daniel Day Lewis has said that he plans to retire, which you know, but we'll whatever. See how, how long that's. <laughs> if he did like his uh, quote unquote comeback movie, he should play Alan Moore <laughs> in a movie. Take play, take the most intense actor who has ever been on the screen to play the most intense comic book writer slash magician ever. <laughs> That would be fun. Uh, but to, going back to you the know, game's but, question. I, but uh, but now that you mention it, I've read the original graphic novel of 300, and oh, that's okay. a fairly faithful adaptation, except for a lot of a lot of parts were added for the movie for Leonidas' wife. Yeah. And those parts are like the kind the parts you can skip over. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but it actually, uh, but um, if you go if you do that skipping, you actually end up with something which is pretty faithful to that graphic novel. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple more examples I can think off the top of my head, which I actually did not read this book. This is something Corey read and told me about that. Um, there's a movie, Mystic River, which is the, uh, it's a Clint Eastwood movie. It was, uh, uh, and I, I love Mystic River. I actually think it's one of his best films. Apparently the book, and it's actually on yeah, my shelf. I I'm, it's actually right over there in my, right near where we're recording. The book is supposedly really close to, uh, uh, the, the film and again i don't know if uh and i think i guess the question is i mean this could make an interesting episode i think we'd have to compile a list of books that we've read combined with the movies that we've seen it's just it would take a little bit of time to think about it um because i when i think about certain books and films that are kind of connected that way um you know like one flew over the cuckoo's nest is a book i've read as well as seen them film the book is different in that it's told from a different point of view. It's told from the Indian's point of view. But there are a lot of things in the book that are in the film that are like the whole structure and whole scenes and dialogue are there. It's just that, you know, again, there's that's, been that's, a major perspective shift. Yeah, there's a perspective shift, which which changes part of the tone. But it's also uh, a matter of uh, uh, maybe. Yeah, some of the tone has changed. Um, and 
but but that is, that's a fairly that's fairly faithful. I'm not going to say it's completely. Uh, I the mean, only but... thing that come the only other thing that comes to mind for me mm-hmm. in terms of books and movies that I, that I share are is the men who stare at goats. Really? I saw that movie and I read that book. I read the book before I saw the movie. I think you told me the book was better. I haven't read the book. Well, we're talking again about adaptations, and this is that's this is a very creative adaptation. Yeah, because it the present... book is the book is more of like a series of kind of like giving you anecdotes about. We'll the tell people is, what's the about. book is straight nonfiction. Yeah, where people are talking about this fascinating. Uh, these fascinating notions of army life, which we have never seen before, and and like I don't say they're typical, but they, uh, but it 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 shows these sort of viewpoints that people had about what the notion of of serving in the army is and what do you do and all these weird things that they did in terms of research and a lot of that material got used in the movie. Right. The problem was the presentation. The the story in the movie is entirely fictional. Those yeah. characters do not exist, mm-hmm. except perhaps for Ewan McGregor's uh, character. I don't remember if he was named after the man who wrote the book, Ron, uh, okay, Ron Johnson or, or John Ronson. I'm not sure. Yeah, but but but, but, but the thing that was really interesting about that, if you have read the book, is it surprises you in the movie about how much of that stuff is actually from real life. Hmm. I mean the the part with the goat lab. <laughs> yeah. That is I mean, you talk about based on a true story. The story they tell in there is not true, but it's taken from all these sources that say something like that or very similar to it happened. Yes. And then there are things about like uh the sort of new age uses of I'm not going to talk too much about that. Uh, it, it's, 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 but it's it was fun. but it was it walked this weird line of dramatizing a fiction, a non-fiction book. Yeah. And it, it, it's a very interesting form of adaptation. I wouldn't say it's the most faithful adaptation because basically the book was more suited to documentary. Okay. But uh, but, that, but that is an interesting example of uh, taking something that, again, is very, not just non-fiction, it's also, just from what you've told me about it, a book that's about very strange things and experiments that are... You know the the whole con the whole concept is here's shit that the government won't tell you about that is not it's not like the kind of JFK conspiracy type stuff where oh my god this is so blown out no this is more just it's almost kind of fun yes it's it's fun conspiracy stuff <laughs> I don't know if that's a way to categorize it. I thought of another one while you were talking uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas the uh, the book and the film those are pretty close. I think there might be a couple of scenes that aren't in uh, in the film that were in the book. Um, I just saw the one, uh, the trial with Anthony Perkins and Orson Welles. Hmm, it's been a while since I've read the book. They changed the ending around a little bit. They did. They, they changed they, it a little they, bit, and they trimmed a little bit of the middle. It's interesting that Orson Welles, I think, said he changed the ending. Of all things, I think because of the Holocaust. I don't know why how that factored into it, but like well, the ending of the book, I think was I mean the movie was also had a bleak ending too, but I think that it was. It's a I weird. It's a weird difference. Like I don't think we should be afraid to spoil the trial. I mean, uh, really, that one. Yeah, that's not... the one that you are gonna go for. That's like not to spoil. 
No, I, what I'm saying is, I right. think we can spoil it. Well, well Joseph, I, at well, the well, end of the book, uh, the main character just gets stabbed and yeah. he's left for dead. And then at the end of the movie, they kind of toy with with him getting that, stabbed, but then they just they isn't there like an? Ex- I thought there was like an explosion. Yeah, something. but like the two executioners, they like pass the knife back and forth, and they're and he's like, "You're trying to get me to stab myself, aren't you?" And then they just leave him and they blow him up. Mm. But and it's kind of. And I remember our friend Matt Rosen talked about this, and he's like, well, yeah, that's a pretty disappointed en- disappointing ending, but the end of the story is a disappointing ending, too. <laughs> uh, so Orson Welles was just faithfully adapting. Oh! He passes just, the oh, buck, in a way. You, you just reminded me of something, uh, talking about endings. Uh, I talked about this movie pretty recently, Gerald's Game. Right. The Stephen King, uh, the recent movie on Netflix, uh, the book of that... Uh, which is, well, that one is interesting because it's faithful more than you'd expect, considering that the whole movie is practically all with a woman who's, again, handcuffed to a bed. She can't get out. And, you know, in the book, you're able to obviously do things with narrative where you have internal dialogue and uh, you can do that sort of thing. But the, the way the movie treated that was really interesting and they were able to stay faithful to all the events in the book, even including the ending. Not that could have been a case where they didn't have to be completely faithful. (laughs) If they had diverged a little bit in the last, like if they had just diverged in the last 10, 15 minutes of the film from what was in the book, it could have been like one of my favorite films of this year. Like it was that good. You missed your chance to capture Jack. Capture Jack? Yes. The okay. movie could have captured you. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I guess so. You could have owned again, you forever. Yeah, I, again, I have to think about this a little bit more. I mean, we could do an episode, maybe even, maybe this would be a good, like, three-group thing. Like, maybe bring Corey into it. Well, maybe. Well, so we'll think about that. I don't know. Um, but it is a great question. Yeah, it is. because uh, that, it, And now it just makes because me it's think. Because it's not about the best adaptations, because that's... That might that's a little old, you know, tired, like saying something's the best. Saying something's the most faithful, you have to kind of put a little bit more thought there's into that. There's complexity in that. Yeah, there's complexity not just when you when you're saying faithful, is it just to the plot? Is it also to the tone? Is it to uh you know, the whole spirit of the book? Yeah. Uh that that gets carried over. Because it's hard to do that. I mean, movies are they're like a whole different other beast. You're able to you know, you're what you picture when you read a book is not always what is going to be on the screen because a movie involves, you know, hundreds of people and people interpreting that particular vision. And, and, you know, it's, and that's why, you know, going back to Stephen King, I mean, the shining is probably the least faithful adaptation of any book ever. And yet it's a movie. Yeah. And, and yet I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. And movie and book, they're they're both, because I've read the book too, that they're able to function as their own entities, so screw you, Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> screw you, author who's given me hours of enjoyment. Yeah. So again, uh, we'll we'll take this under uh, consideration as a thing. Uh, oh, another one that I just thought of. I haven't read the book of this, but uh, Jaws. Uh, apparently, the book is much different than the yeah. movie. But that was a case where, like, the book had like a subplot involving the mob, yeah. who were like trying to control the mayor and. Like, and, I think uh, you could throw out that garbage. Like, also, or also, like Richard Dreyfuss's character was supposed to have an affair with. Uh, yeah, with bro, with, with uh, uh, the Steve sheriff's wife. wife. Yeah, and 
Oh, another one I should mention too. Which... Also, the shark was really a boy stuck in the walls. <laughs> what? You heard me. It's a very strange adaptation. They changed a lot of stuff around. Well, that's kind of like how uh, Francis Ford Coppola said that uh, the Godfather, the book, like he he had to cut out like there's some plot line involving like Michael Corleone's dick or something. There. <laughs> I remember my my friend in high school. Actually, my friend like from grade school to middle school was a, a was a big fan of mafia movies okay and he had seen the godfather probably when he was like 12 well that was i i saw that when i was 12 too i saw goodfellas when i was yeah, 12 but you're, and... you're 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 slightly italian so this may... okay <laughs> every italian person has to see the godfather by before they're 13 anyway uh wow okay i it's a new was... jersey thing i guess yes <laughs> or my mom just really anyway liked the movie casual racism aside we, yeah, thanks. Hashtag casual. Like there, there's an entire sex scene in like the first chapter of The Godfather. Yeah, well, that takes place during the wedding, and there are other things. There's like a subplot with that policeman who shoots like that guy in the steps of the courthouse. Yeah, I mean, and he like he has an intricate backstory. Apparently, this is what my friend told me because he had actually read the novel too. Yeah, and you know, it, it, you know, The Godfather is a huge novel. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you can't take everything out of that. Yeah, and that was already a three-hour movie. And uh, what I admire about that, when you talk about just the the art of adaptation, um, Coppola famously had, like, this thing called The Godfather Notebook, which you can actually buy now. Like, he actually put it out in the past year or two. It was like, he actually just took the book itself and, like, cut, like, cut out the book, it's, like, out of its binding and put it into uh, like this like giant three ring binder and like taped each page to like a giant like another piece of paper and then used like he basically used that book as his working script like he basically wrote did notes all over the place okay. which is what you're supposed Cross to do Cross out the part with the dick <laughs> add more stuff with the sauce make sure that the horse is this bloody and um but anyway th so thanks gabe we'll uh we'll get back to uh and see if that might be a future episode um anyway i've seen a couple things i'd like to kind of mention uh i uh, i filled a gap i think that was a pretty big gap in my movie watching knowledge uh i watched creature from the black Lagoon. Science couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon. A throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before. In this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. I have not seen is the that, creature. Oh, you have not. Lagoon. Okay. <laughs> is that something that you've thought about watching here and there over the years or something? Not really. Because I'm not it, I Is that the one universal monster that's kind of escaped you? Basically, yeah, I've seen everything else. Yeah, and you Even know what's Phantom what, of the Opera. 
Uh, yeah. The... But, it, you know, it's like, I haven't really cared about the Universal Monster films, aside from, like, the classics. And then... Well, I thought, well, that was kind of, I thought that was, that is kind of considered, like, the final sort of classic. Yeah. But then, on the other hand, the way that I made an analogy about it, calling that, I almost feel weird pairing that with the Universal Monsters, because it was made in 1954, or 53, it's like saying Pulp Fiction is part of the uh, movie brats of the 70s. And maybe it is. Maybe in spiritually, it, it can be grouped with a lot of those 70s movies, but it was made in the 90s. Yeah. So I don't know if that quite... Because, it, again, because it's the 50s, it's more of like a 50s monster movie. But it might be probably one of the better ones. Like, it, it's... It, it bypasses a lot of the problems that you that you get with a lot of those monster movies. And I think part of the reason is because this was maybe the one that kicked off a lot of garbage being made after it. Although, and the other thing, too, that I, I wrote this in my review was that I feel like you could almost chart a line from not even the monster, the Universal Monster movies, really from King Kong through Creature of the Black Lagoon and then the Jaws. You're talking about a th- uh, you're talking about an unbroken thread that joins a ch- a chain of films. Kind of, I don't know. Like, so, so lay this out for me. You, well, like, because you start with King Kong. Well, well, here, yeah. Well, so, well, here's the thing. With the, in in Creature from the Black Lagoon, you have this group of scientists who uh, f- find out that there's these fossils that have been discovered in the somewhere in the Amazon jungle uh, underwater. And so they go uh, exploring into the depths of the jungle. Um, there have been a couple of people who are, are killed who are already out there, like, trying to dig up stuff. Um, mysteriously, these scientists show up. Um, there's a famous scene where uh, this actress, uh, Julie Adams, is in a bathing, white bathing suit and swimming around, and the creature Excellent is kind of choice. swimming with her. It's uh, She looks nice in the bathing suit. That's all I'll say. Um, right. And... Um, and then the, 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 the then there's this kind of divide between the two main male characters because one of them just wants to get the hell out of there and the other one's like, no, we, we've got to take this back with us. The world has to see that this creature exists. We also have to save the hot lady. Yeah, pretty much that. Um, and it stylistically, it's it, again, the reason why I think of King Kong, part of that's because of the jungle, because of the mystery of uh, the setting and uh, the kind of danger of that place. And I think of Jaws because of more so like the second half of Jaws, where it's just like on the mission to, you know, to get the shark. I feel like Jaws probably took a lot from, the movie took a lot from Creature from the Black Lagoon. All right, so let me let me kind of go through this to make sure I understand you. Yeah. All right, so you have King Kong, which is like the, the Beauty and the Beast story. Yeah. And then you have the ending where the Beast is brought into man's world and then is doomed. Yeah. Okay, so Creature from the Black Lagoon. I haven't seen it, so help me out here. It's the, it's that same, you go into the area, you have that Beauty and the Beast story, and then does it have that sort of, you take the Beast out and bring him back, or is it like um, that hunt for the Beast that takes it It's a little bit half? more of the hunt. Like, the thing is, the creature doesn't quite have the personality of a King Kong. It has a little bit of personality. Like you almost feel, I, I felt a little sorry for the, for the creature, but not Even, to the degree that you'd feel sorry for King Kong. No. Well, well the thing is also it's, um, the, it, the creature doesn't quite have the same eyes. Uh, I really like the work I've that seen, they, 
put in the creature though because like you can see the gills of, moving yeah I, i've seen pictures of of the creature and you know he he's fantastic but he's not like he doesn't have like the features that you he, he has big dark eyes right yeah and he has like these rubbery lips that have some expression but not a human expression. No, and no. It's hard and that's, to feel for that. Yeah, and that's why I think connects him a little bit more with like the shark from Jaws, where there's almost because they almost the the opening of Creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of crazy. The opening for the Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, there's a shot of the sun, and you hear narration going in the beginning, there was light, and God created the heaven. Like there's like almost like narration that it's sounds, like cecil b demille it's cecil b demille <laughs> and it's like sets up like something that's like bigger than any, like it goes back millions of yeah. years this creature and then it goes into deep in the jungles of south america we have then this cre- but it starts off like so grand and epic and like uh <clears throat> and that that's what now the thing is eventually this isn't exactly a spoiler but eventually they do they don't they don't bring the creature back to civilization that's why I think connects a little bit more to Jaws. It's more about how, like... Um, but again, that's why right, so, it, it has the DNA of a little bit of King Kong, but you also see the germ of what went into Jaws. Uh, and that, I think also... Well, if we go from Creature of the Black Lagoon to Jaws, then we have Creature Causes Trouble. Yes. Men go out to hunt it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's a there's a final confrontation also- with the brutality of nature and the the like the deep mysterious primal parts yeah. of, of the earth. And also the characters in Jaws also have to. Come I think ra- I, I think I just pulled a Jodorowsky right there. Wow, you you have big vision of of movies. You're a cinematic warrior. <laughs> spiritual warrior of uh, cinema yes. yeah like herd herdzog would actually say that actually for like just a couple minutes i thought of herdzog watching this just because jungle the conquistador of the useless yeah um all but, right so i see what you're talking about well and now and i'm not saying that this is exactly i, th- I think actually jaws and king kong are slightly better than creature in the black lagoon right it's almost there like a creature like there are still a few supporting performances that are a little stiff uh you know there's a little bit of like expository dialogue here and there that like you could tell how the lesser parts of this movie influenced all of the shitty parts of other monster <laughs> movies uh, I, uh... that followed from it i mean and there are titles that are so like after this like creature from the haunted sea hmm. and beast uh with a thousand eyes and all those types of titles. I think I, that comes from creature from the black lagoon. I think basically, I mean, this is like a, um, and I don't know if I'm going out there having this theory. I mean, I'm, no, I I'm see, still, you have a good point. I'm trying to maybe put about, it in context. You're talking about history. paradigm shifts in, in, in narrative where it's like, you know, King Kong is kind of like creature from the black lagoon creature from the black lagoon is kind of like jaws. It's, it's like, it's like a, a few, like a few different degrees of. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but <laughs> but, but you can see the plot similarities between these films. But once you get to that other end, you have something completely different. Jaws guess, is not King Kong, no. But Creature from the Black Lagoon helps to bridge those two. Exactly, exactly, and that's why I think that that almost. That's why it feels a little strange that this is kind of included with that universal monster universe i can see why they do it because the studio 
released a monster movie because that became a big hit. Because the creature is iconic. The creature is iconic. I mean, the, the again, the, the, the design and the suit for the creature is great. Another thing I should mention, too, that I, I really enjoyed is the underwater photography. Okay. Which... You know, that might sound like a simple point, but for 1954 or whatever it was, it was really terrific, all the shots that they get with this creature. And they had two people who were playing the creature, like one who was swimming and then one who's on land. This is also the kind of movie that the last five to ten minutes, or even just the last five minutes, take it almost into iconic status. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen that image of the creature holding uh, the woman. Yeah. Like, that's what happens near the very end, and it's like, he, he takes her into his, like, cave, and then, like, when, the, like, a guy comes in, and she's just, like, kind of laid out on, like, a rock, and the way that you see the the shot of her on the rock, uh, where, where the creature's, like, slightly off screen, it's just amazing. Right. It's, like, uh, one of those shots that... I mean, that... that... That sh- that image of a monster holding a, yeah. uh, an unconscious woman that's 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 a motif that repeats throughout the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and again, like and as as I said, a tiny bit of DNA from King Kong. Whether they were, I don't know if they were intentionally doing it or not. That might have just been. This is me using my own critical, theoretical mind on this. Yeah, and there are other films that carry that DNA of King Kong, like The Valley of Guanji. Valley of Guanji? Yeah. What's that? That's the Ray Harryhausen Cowboys versus Dinosaurs film. What? You haven't heard of Valley of Guanji? See, this is like again, like I I, I come up on some movies that I It's haven't kind seen of and... like Creatures from the Black Lagoon, actually. It's like <laughs> it's, Or based on my description. It, it takes place in the old West. Cowboys discover a tiny horse. I can't believe I've never heard of this movie. Cowboys discover a tiny horse, and they find out it came from an isolated valley out in the desert. And so they go there to search for it, and they end up in this valley where there are all these dinosaurs still living. And they find Guanji, who is like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. All of these done in stop motion by Ray Harryhausen. Wow, I I can't believe I've never seen this. Yeah. I just... (laughs) I just saw it last spring, probably. Okay. Because they did an episode of it on Welcome to the Basement. Oh, okay. But it's this—it's that same story. You t- you capture the monster and bring him back to civilization, and he runs amok. But it's also Creature from the Black Lagoon. You go to an isolated place. Well, it's also like King Kong, where you find these primal beasts. Well, a primal beast, which I should say. Yeah. Oh, here's another. Here is a weird fact that I learned when I was I was looking up uh, some some things about this about this movie. Apparently, when Ingmar Bergman was alive, every year on his birthday, he would watch Creature from the Black Lagoon. Huh. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was the opening of the film. That's cool. Or he liked uh, Julie Adams in The Bathing Suit. Uh, <laughs> Look, the man, can, the man can make any watch any movie he wants. Yeah. But, yeah there, uh, but you know how I made you watch uh, The Thing from Another World? Uh, yes. And I made you watch them? Yes. I made you watch them, not because they're great movies. Well, they are, they were also pretty big holes missing in my filmography. Right. They are good movies, but they also, but the thing that they have in common, which I thought was really important, is that they are like the creature of the Black Lagoon. Right. origin for all these tropes of B-movies that we see throughout the 50s and 60s. Yeah. I mean, 
isolated people fight off a monster in 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 a in an isolated military yes uh facility mm-hmm. or giant mutated creatures menace the world yes it's like these things do the, did it if not first they mm-hmm. did it early and they did it the best. Okay. Everything after that was a cheap imitation. Yeah, well, that's why, case in point, <laughs> that's why I would recommend to you, especially, to check out Creature from the Black Lagoon at some place. Right. Because that would... Uh, because that, that's the feeling I'm getting from what your description is. It's, well, it, well the, the thing that makes it stand out, though, is, again, we, we've seen so much, you know, B-movie crap and, like, you know, stuff on Mystery Science Theater or right. maybe stuff outside of that. Uh you know, and even, you know, I, I again, I've, I've even watched a couple movies, ashamedly, that have been on Mystery Science Theater that, you know, are not. Like, it conquered the world. Yeah. And and the problems are, and, and the thing that you always notice are that the, the, the main actors are not very strong, and also the dialogue is not very commanding. This, I guess, <laughs> if it is, it also has a little bit of that thing, like, the, in the thing from another world, where you have people who are able to a deliver the dialogue and b it's good expository dialogue that it has some reason to be there yeah it's not just like scientists spouting off uh, gibberish about this creature from another planet that came through radiation and and blah 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 we found out too late that man was a feeling creature <laughs> and because of it the greatest in the universe that never gets old. No. No. Peter Graves. <laughs> what movie was that from again? It conquered the world. Oh yeah, that's yeah, his, yeah. That's his that is his his ending monologue. Yes. I will say, like, yeah, Lee Van Cleef was actually kind of awesome in that movie. Beverly I, Garland. Yeah. You know that she actually um when mi- the Mystery Science Theater people did that movie, they were actually complimentary of her performance, like yeah. in like behind the scenes footage, and she actually came to like a mystery science theater event. Yeah, so I great. read about that in the the episode guide, like the early thing they put out before the show was one off the air. Okay, and yeah, they 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 dedicated like two pages to her roles in movies they had watched, where she was always a strong actress. Yeah, where she always played able characters. Mm-hmm. Like who took the initiative and 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 didn't take didn't take uh, didn't take crap from any of the men around her. Yeah. And and she was and she uh, responded to those things. Like she went to the convention and she did all this these things and everyone was like, "Yeah, you're cool." Yeah. Um. But, but yeah, Creature from the Black Lagoon. If uh, if you if you're looking for a last minute thing to watch on Halloween or or just any time, uh, I mean, this was something that I was lucky to pick up. Uh, just out of the blue at, uh, at a con- I think part of the reason, too, that I wanted to check it out finally is, um, I don't know if you saw the trailer for The Shape of Water. Does that, does that ring water. a bell? No. Guillermo del Toro's next movie, oh, which is yeah. coming out. Uh, I saw a trailer for that when we saw Mother. Yeah, and it's uh, Michael Shannon and uh, Sally Hawkins. And- the unofficial prequel to Hellboy. <laughs> He he loves his uh, he he loves his swimming fishmen, and this one it that's I feel like this is, he is really firing on like the creature from the Black Lagoon. This influence. is this is going to be like the floweriest love letter Guillermo del Toro has ever written. Yeah, I mean it's I think it's all it is R rated though, so it's going to be it's going to be very flowery, but it's also going to be I'm also having an expectation that it will have like. 
an edge to it, like Pan's Labyrinth. I hope so. It has a little bit of that tone, but but part of I wanted to refamiliarize myself with uh, that that movie. That's smart. Um, I'm thinking about that trailer now. I mean, I haven't thought about it probably since I saw that trailer. Okay. Except for maybe thinking about like Michael Shannon yelling, "What did he say?" Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I just remember the look of that trailer and all yeah. those shots and like that that sort of like deep blue green color palette with like the the brass around and mm-hmm. and that sort of uh, it seemed so every image in that looked so deep like it was like it was designed to hell and I and I was just like man it looks fantastic yeah and uh, uh, nobody creates like a environment like that guy like you know we could i I could say that parts of pacific rim are really silly yes but just there i i still remember that there's like this one scene where charlie hunnam is first walking into that uh that gigantic space where they have all of their uh uh what do they call not not the kaiju the jaegers Jaegers. and it feels like it's a real place. It yeah. doesn't feel like it's CGI. It it has real texture to it. Uh, it's old... not it's not just like a gray, white, like flat space like sometimes some of these sci fi movies give us when it's like an environment. Yeah. The only other director I, I can think of who really ever did that sense of place mm. that well is Tim Burton. Yeah, Tim Burton is known for that. I was about to say that exactly. Yeah, Tim Burton is known for that. Especially. I, I I realized that when I first saw Batman. Yeah, how Gotham City seemed so utterly convincing. Yeah, Even, and uh, I'm not gonna go. No, no, no. I know, no. We're, we're maybe going off on a tangent with that. Uh, have there been any things you've watched lately? I rewatched OJ Made in America. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to. Uh, uh, I now have it in kind of my lesson plan with my students to uh, to show them the first uh, three hours of that yeah. uh, to to them like all, everything up till the the murder basically yeah uh, rethinking it uh, I, there's there are so many little things I've realized about why why this story is so poignant and why the whole, why the phenomenon of OJ Simpson and his murder trial were so important. But about the film itself, I want to say it's got that it's got the great five. It, it conforms very well to that that five act structure. Yeah, it does. And not just because it's in five parts, but because every act does what an act is supposed to do, uh, and it just yeah. Uh, that first act leaves it off where you know because there's like that one friend of Nicole's who just says like you know so much of this just could have been you know it could have been all so different, and that's just what's so sad. Yeah. Like she says something like that, and then the episode ends, and that's that's it. Um, I mean, I think it almost it could function as a long movie. Um, uh, you're actually reminding me. I was going to talk about another film, uh, but I, I just watched a a documentary series called the The Defiant Ones. Mm-hmm. Not to not I, I I should say not to be confused with the Sidney Poitier uh, Tony Curtis movie, <laughs> although I think maybe the title has. That must have not been chosen by accident. Um, this is on HBO, and it's a four-part series that looks at uh, the the lives and careers of uh, Dr. Dre, the uh, the rap the, the rapper and uh, mogul and producer. Dr. Blah, Dre blah. MD. Dr. Dre MD. Yes. Uh, oh, <laughs> you're just making me think of something with that, but. Um, and also this music producer and also a, a mogul named Jimmy 
I'm going to mispronounce his name. His name's Jimmy Oivin. Oivin? No, Oivin or something. All right. And he, um, I know too much about him. I actually realized, oh, I have seen this guy before because he, uh, he kind of got his start. Like he, he wanted to get into music. Like that was his real thing. And he somehow managed to, like, he was like sweeping floors at like a record studio and, happened that he was trying to learn how to work at the uh, at, at the soundboard like at the mixer and one day like this engineer didn't show up and uh, it was like easter sunday and he's told like we need you to come in here and he's like are you crazy it's easter i can't come in no, just just come trust me just come here and he comes to the studio and john lennon's there huh. and his like first time working on engineering boards like 1973 or something and he works with john lennon yeah. And then he produced, uh, then he, he helped engineer uh, Born to Run with Bruce Springsteen. Then he works with Tom Petty and uh, Patti Smith and uh, uh, U2 for, for a while in the 80s uh, during their kind of heyday. And it's interesting because the movie kind of contrasts these two people who, again, I didn't know much about this Jimmy Oveen guy. I knew a bit about Dr. Dre, and, you know, in part because of, you know, I've seen my share behind the musics and. Uh, the Stroud Compton movie, um, behind the scenes, but I didn't falling apart. But but I didn't realize like how the the director did an interesting job about eventually getting to where these two people meet and work with each other. Because what happens is the movie opens with how I don't know if you've heard the Beats headphones. Yes. Yeah, you Beats by Dre. Yeah. I guess you can't escape them uh, because they're kind of all over the place. Walk into any high school in America. Oh really? Yeah. So they're really popular there. Well, that's because the, the these guys. Uh, well, here, they almost tell the story too, and it almost sounds like a like it's a fake story, but I have to believe it's real. It's like because one day Dr. Dre was just like at his beach house, and this Jimmy Oving guy was walking on the beach. Dr. Dre's like, "Hey, Jimmy, why don't you come up here?" Uh, he's like, "Sure." And they're like hanging out, and Dr. Dre's telling him about how like he's he was approached to do like a sneaker deal, and he just didn't want to do it because he didn't really know about shoes and this and that. And this guy tells Dr. Dre, no, no, stop right now. It's not sneakers, it's speakers. Yep. He that did that. That is great. <laughs> it's probably bullshit, but I, uh, it's, it, it makes for a story. And what happens was, so they, they and it's, it's weird because they don't really fully get into the beats by Dre section until the fourth episode, but they open the whole series with it. And they opened with like how they they ended up selling these Beats, uh, this whole speaker headphone system, for like three billion dollars hmm. to Apple, and it became like this crazy thing. Like, wow, but Dr. Dre is now a billionaire, and, and blah blah blah. And and then they go into the story of these two guys and how they kind of started from working class poor roots, and it's it through them the way that you were talking about OJ and how OJ is almost it becomes like this microcosm for for race and uh, and class and kind of also racial identity in America. Yeah. This is like a look at the music industry, like as a whole in through like the past 30 to 40 years. Yeah. Cause through these two guys, you kind of get a sense of, well, here's how music was changing. Jimmy Olivine was more on the rock side because again, he was working with Tom Petty and uh, Stevie Nicks and all those people. Like he was the one that brought Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks together to do that. I don't know if you hear that song, Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Mm -hmm. Like, he was kind of, like, the guy getting them together for that. Um, 
Uh, but then also Dr. Dre, how he got started, where saying Dr. Dre MD made me think how when he first started out, uh, he was part of this, because um, in the 80s, like, it was more of like turntables and that type of stuff. Yeah. And he actually would put on like, like a doctor's outfit, like the scrubs and like the surgical mask. And he would almost like, almost like a superhero. He would get on stage and then like do his Dr. Dre thing. Turns out he was just germaphobic. (laughs) I don't want to touch these dirty records. Ah. Yeah, exactly. And, but then it also, then how they really met up was that Dr. Dre in the nineties wanted to get out of, uh, some record deal he was in. And he had a lot of problems because there was this and that with like another company that that he was with with a member of NWA to Jimmy Olvine who created this other company called Interscope Records and that became like a huge thing in the 90s because the Death Row label went there and it looks like and it looks at kind of in the way that in the way that OJ Made in America looked at the OJ, the, the 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 trial this looks at the East Coast West Coast whole thing that happened in a similar type of focus. Um, it's not quite to the depth or, uh, or, you know, how great um, OJ was that documentary, but it, it gets, tries to get close to that. It also is really interesting too, as a documentary because of how the director cuts between interviews, he'll like, he'll have like two people talking about some topic and he'll cut like between the two people but it'll be in such a way where sometimes he'll just cut to somebody just kind of looking at the camera or having a face as you hear the other person's talking and then cut back to the other guy. And it creates this thing where psychologically you're thinking about how tense these record negotiations were to, to do this and that in these companies and also how intense things were behind the scenes with the East coast, West coast rap. Like, Cause I forgot. Cause I was, I mean, I knew about this cause I was a kid and I grew up in a predominantly, I went to a predominantly black middle school and high school. So I knew about this to an extent, but I had no idea how insane it was. These East coast, West coast rivalries and how it, it developed and how, uh, you know, like, you know, Tupac, him getting killed was so like, unnecessary and so such a stupid thing to happen yeah um but uh but yeah it, it was uh that's something i checked out just you telling me about that reminded me of it the other thing i wanted to mention before we move on i saw a movie which i know you haven't seen by but you know the subject matter i saw professor marston and the wonder woman who's charles moulton that is my pseudonym Why don't you write Wonder Woman under your real name? Because most Americans have a low opinion of comic book writers. Or is it something else? A person is most happy when they are submissive to a loving authority. I want to study her. She'll break your heart. You'll be jealous. I'm your wife, not your jailer. I think you long for an unconventional life. Maybe I just want her because you do. Ah, yes. Yes. Ah, yes, yes. 
the yes, Professor yeah. Marston. I I have my pipe, and I'm going to meet Professor Marston today. Possibly have an orgy. Because uh, <laughs> you, I've you've... read about uh, William Moulton Marston. William Marston. Mar- What's his full name again? William Moulton Marston. That's a great middle name. That's great. Moulton. It's like Moulton. molten lava. M-O- U-L-T-O-N. Sure, yeah. We'll add the U there to make him not seem too uh, volcanic a person. He um, was, uh... I've, le- I've read very interesting things about him. Yeah. He and, was... He was a feminist before feminism. Yes. And, and or like, what we would know as feminism. He, he was part of the original, like... He tried to get women to speak at Harvard. Yeah. And, and this actually isn't in the movie. I, I read a little bit of... The book, The Secret History of Wonder of Wonder Woman. I didn't get maybe as far as maybe you did. I actually didn't get too far in that time either because I kind of lost interest in it. Not not the book's fault. No, I just read a book about Wonder Woman, and uh, then oh, you I, read a different book, a different one, okay. yes, about the actual comics that Marston wrote. Right, and and it's interesting though, but because the movie doesn't get into the comic books part until well into halfway through the movie. Right, like the first half is just sh- setting up how. For those of you who don't know, William Moulton Marston, he also created the lie detector. He worked on it. Yeah, that's the thing. The movie, at first I thought he created it, but then it turns out he didn't get, he didn't have the patent. No. Because I think someone, I mean, well, the movie tried to make him sound like he didn't believe in patents, that they should like, you know, these things should be for the world and something. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, movie. I'm doing a little jerking off uh, motion. You don't have to tell them what motions you're doing. <laughs> Sorry. I need to give my listeners... Please, there are children way. in the room. Sorry. Um, I'm talking about Wonder Women. They, one, this movie. They shouldn't be listening to this. This is an R-rated movie. This is... this Of three movies involving Wonder Woman this year, this is the R-rated one. Because... Is it better than the other ones? Well, I mean, I I have a different view of the Wonder Woman movie. That okay, came assuming out than that you, you were do. me, would I think I like you would like. Better? I think you would like this more than Wonder Woman. And it's, yes. it's Luke Perry. What's well, a different? Not Luke, Luke Perry. Perry? Damn it. No, Luke Evans. Luke Evans. Luke Perry is. Yeah. As soon as I said it, I thought, no, that's you know, different. actually, it's, well, Luke Evans. What's weird about him in this movie, like, because I've seen him in other stuff. Like he was, uh, like he's in the Hobbit movies, for example. He was in and, Immortals. Yes, he was Zeus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was in Immortals. Funny, in, fun, strangely enough, also the first time I I ever ever saw Henry Cavill, Immortals. Yeah, I mean, I probably saw Henry Cavill in something else before that, but that was the first thing that he made an impression. Yeah, in that one. Um, also, uh, he looks like Michael Shannon, but like Michael Shannon, if his face was a little more gaunt. Yeah, like he has similar eyes. He's a less intimidating version of Michael Shannon. Yes, yes, less intimidating. Um. I mean, again, it's in, it's just fascinating because you had this guy in the late twenties and thirties who was married, and uh, Rebecca Hall plays uh, the wife, and she's great. She's because what's interesting is you almost get a sense like because there's the wife, and then there's this uh, other girl who's was his student, and they the both uh, the the Mar- William Marston and his wife uh, played by Re- Rebecca Hall, they fell in love with this girl. And the girl fell in love with them. And it was like a real legitimate three-way... Love triangle. Love triangle. Well, A complimentary but, but, love triangle. Well, you say love triangle, usually the thing you think of is that they, you know, there was competing interests. But this was different. This was oh, like... The, the, a better way to think of it probably would be like... A... And, and they decided that, you know, because William Marston 
knocked up the the student girl. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on their names. It's this okay. Really it's bad. okay. Um, it's a long day. Well, you've knocked her up, I guess. <laughs> well, I kind of liked I, her anyway. So, all right. as a film critic, I apologize for my tactless. Um, but they ended up living together, yeah. and they were raising kids. Like he would have, you know, he had some Just kids like paint with... your wagon. <laughs> yeah. Ex- well, except that I don't think Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood were No, neither of them were knocked up. <laughs> no, they were... We did not get, like... that. There was no Brokeback Mountain in Paint Your Wagon. There's nothing if in there the was, Bible saying that a woman can't have two husbands. Yeah, you're right. In case you're wondering, that is the plot of Paint Your Wagon. That's... Uh, <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, there are other things that happen too. It's a three-hour musical featuring Clint Eastwood. That was a lot more to it than that. That needs to be our. That needs to be our a movie for our case file series. Sounds good to me. We need to because I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Since you saw it with me, probably. Well, since Corey saw it and amazingly declared it better than the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's weird. But anyway, back to uh, this movie. Um. What I like is that here, here's where here's where I will pitch you to where you will really like this movie. Things that this reminded me of. One thing it reminded me of that you haven't seen, which is uh, Masters of Sex. It had a little bit of that tone where you're dealing with kind of a world of it's an academic world that is also trying to deal with sex. I guess Kinsey was a little bit like that too. Mm. But as far as you have this period setting where you know everybody is really uptight about sex. And they don't know what to do with Pretty it. Pretty much any period in history. Yeah. <laughs> All right, no, well, not necessarily. Well, in the 20th century. I mean. Any moment in the 20th and, century. Um, and going back to when I was talking about Creature of the Black Lagoon and that being kind of like this connective tissue between King Kong and and uh, and Jaws. Jaws. Now, I'm not going to say that this isn't necessarily like connective tissue as far as the timeline going every 20 years or something like that in cinema. But as far as... I was thinking about this uh, because the other thing that it made me think of was the movie we talked about a while back called Hysteria. Yeah. Which was all about uh, how Maggie Gyllenhaal creates... A really good romantic comedy. A really good romantic comedy about... about the invention of the vibrator. Yes. And that was a very entertaining movie. Um, This is also an entertaining film. I would say the one mark against it is that it does have some of the... It does have some tropes of a typical biopic... Um, you know, like it, if, if you were like on Netflix and you were looking at like movies that we'll recommend to you that might be like this, you might also see hidden figures, for example, which is, you know, a perfectly respectable, well-made, well-acted movie that is also typical of its genre. What makes it stand out is the subject matter. The fact that, again, this guy was involved with the lie detector. You get scenes in this movie where characters are using the lie detector almost in like a sensual way. Like it's almost truth or dare, which it makes it kind of like, cause the way that the fun with lie detectors. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Well, well, not so much fun. It's has like, has your, has your best girl been unfaithful? She'll never tell. Well, well you see the process of much in the same way that when hysteria, that movie tries to look at, okay, how does a woman's orgasm work? And how do we get this? How do we get more of those? <laughs> yes. Well, also, how do we get to see what a lie detector really is? Like, for example, they're do they have I'll a scene. I'll tell you what it isn't admissible in court. 
Yeah, that's the funny thing that lie detectors are not admissible in court, even though, you know, that maybe they're right. Maybe. <laughs> but what's interesting is that they show when they're trying to test it out, uh, like like William Marston is 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 in the lie detector, and it's like an old time one. Like it's almost, it's not like a sheet where you see like the needle go up. It's almost like a circle. Or something like that. It's hard to explain. It's the Mark one. But but like there's a scene where she's asking him. She asks him a question like, "Is Babe Ruth the president?" And he says no. And the needle doesn't move at all. And they realize, oh, this is because you have no. Even though you're not telling the truth, you're not. You have no connection to that question at all. You have no stake in that question right. whatsoever. But then you ask him a question like, "Do you love this girl?" Uh, your student, and then the needle, and then he says no. And the needle goes up a little bit, and all that, and then, but then, it, 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 there's some type of sensual quality to like these, uh, yeah, Q and A sessions, and then obviously in the second half of the film, you know, he was also in the bondage. Yeah. As, uh, um, it made me also want to check out some of those early Wonder Woman comics. They are off the wall. <laughs> yeah. Because he was... I, we thought, think about, like, comics in, like, the, the sort of staid manner where it was always, like, kind of predictable and, and and you know, just a little bit goofy. Yeah. But Wonder Woman, in her first incarnations, was not a little bit goofy. She was goofy all the way through. Well, well... Crazy. Well, well in the movie, as they show, uh, William Marston had this whole idea that... Again, his wife and his girlfriend, uh, well, you know, eventual other wife, I don't know what you'd call her. Spare wife. Yeah. they Personality-wise, the way that Rebecca Hall plays her character, she's very, you know, forceful and tough and opinionated. And um, uh, the other girl, uh, who, again, she's a fairly new actress, that's why I'm blanking on her name, uh, but she's very good. She's a little more vulnerable and a little bit softer. I think William Marston was clearly looking at those two women in his life and just mesh them together to yeah. make Diana uh, the, the, of the Amazons. And the way that he pitched it, like there's a scene where he goes into DC comics and is pitching the, uh, the editor and is, you know, he, he's, he's trying to pitch it like it's some great work of art. And he's just like, come on, buddy. I'm, I make Superman comics. <laughs> And, uh, and that guy is like, Oliver Platt. There, there is a little. I, it's talking about the origins of Wonder Woman. Pe- like people around the time of creation of Wonder Woman uh, were trying to fight the idea that comic books were trash. Yeah, even even as far back then, even before the hysteria of the fifties. And I think they took Marston on as kind of like, see, this guy, he's a academic guy who cares about things. Yeah, he can. He's working with us to write good stories for kids and then he gives them this idea for wonder woman we have bondage we have lesbianism yes we have uh i mean not that they're there overtly but if you look at it carefully if you look at it like yeah it's there but it's not there. well that's part of what makes the movie a little typical is that it has something that i've seen in a number of biopics where it has like the, the framing device that you know the movie is really you know we're we're, we're telling the story from him being in front of the comics code panel or what you call it or, oh, or actually that. well not even well it's not so much that it's a child psychiatrist woman who's like a the most trusted woman in the country dealing with child uh, psychiatry and you know he's questioning him about everything with wonder woman and then it kind of leads into like here's the story of how i was at the school and then 
got into this three-way and then got kicked out and had to get a house, blah, blah, blah. So again, structurally, it's not great, but the subject matter is just so inherently interesting, you know, much like with, uh, you know, Hysteria or I mentioned Kinsey as kind of another example where, yeah, and you have really good actors too. Like Luke Evans is probably better here than I've seen him in in other stuff like but then again i can't really judge him in the hobbit movies because whatever fuck them um but again it's just fascinating how this guy decided to you know it maybe part in part because of uh, desperation because he couldn't really get teaching work after a while because he had a little bit of a stigma of you have the this weird relationship with two women um you're too weird for our campus (laughs) yeah well too weird for the campus and also it becomes an issue when you know, he tries to just lead a normal life in, like, a, sub, you know, regular suburban town. And, you know, it, 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 I won't say what happens that leads to the conflicts that come from that, but it's a couple of interesting moments. As I mentioned, also bondage, <coughs> which is always interesting. Uh, somebody else brought up this comparison. I watched a video review of this movie, and someone also brought up the movie uh, Secretary. Hannah, did we ever talk about that movie? We've talked about it tangentially to a lot of things. We might have talked about one of our sex uh, episodes. Yeah, probably. Because, you know, I think that's a movie we both really enjoy. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. And that, and it's also that kind of sense of, we're going to deal with, we're going to deal with bondage. Another film with, uh, with Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yes. And we're going to deal with bondage in this movie, but we're going to show it kind of honestly. We're not going to try to make it sensationalized. Here's just... These people enjoy bondage because it involves something that legitimately excites them. And that's not something to be ashamed about. Like, this is... Submissiveness and, and yeah. dominance. Yeah, there's a bit of a... In a way which isn't sensational, but which is there in its... In, in perhaps a more pure form than if you yeah. had toted out all the whips and all the the handcuffs and everything. Well, that, well, that's also one other thing, too, that I should mention that... I feel like a movie like this, like the Professor Marston Wonder Woman, you know, if you don't have to, well, the thing that's nice is you don't have to be a, like a comic book fan to, 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 to watch it. Like no. if you, if you want to go check it out because you're a big Wonder Woman fan, you can, but it's almost not really made for that audience. Uh, I mean, although there is a scene where visually, uh, the younger wife, uh, gets into the initial quote unquote costume yeah. thanks to a uh like this french bondage uh shopkeeper uh get, he gets him into the full outfit and the the, the lasso and everything very lucrative business yeah you, you, <laughs> you the very the very first wonder woman cosplay before the comic was invented this, man <laughs> pre-cosplay yeah pre-cosplay there you go um but what I was getting to. I just had this idea. Like, dress up in a costume and claim that you're a character that doesn't exist. Mm. But then just, like, see where it goes from there. Yeah. Um, but uh, I... No, no, but, but but a movie like this is much... It deals with sex in a much healthier way in relationships than the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. And again, I haven't even seen those movies, but I know enough about 50 them. Fifty Shades of Grey is the movie neither of us has seen, but I've talked about the most. Someday we will have to watch those first two movies. That's just... what we should have done for our 100th episode. <laughs> oh, now you're saying that. Thanks for sharing Damn that it. with us. It, it comes out too late. It's it's fine. We'll, we'll, 
we'll make it like our special Christmas uh, episode or something. All right, I agree. But 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 again, because that movie deals with relationships and sex in such a way that are like, they making a third Fifty Shades of Grey film? Of course they are. All right, good. Well, they have to complete the trilogy. Oh yeah. <laughs> God, this is like the nightmare that happens when bad, uh, you know. Uh, sex uh, erotica oh, becomes uh, Hollywood uh, movies. Uh, this has been around since the 1950s, this idea. No, but I mean like being made into movies that are marketed like big blockbusters. Yeah. You know, because like, th- these movies have made hundreds would, of millions of dollars. I would claim before bo- blockbusters that a lot of the literary trash that what we consider now trash was always a big box office draw. I mean, the not the movie version of Peyton Place, the okay. movie version of Valley of the Dolls. Okay, fair, and then fair, now fair, Fifty fair Shades of Grey is coming. It's the same thing. Sure, it's or... it's cashing in on sex and the sensationalization of I, sex. I guess my 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 point and, is and scandal. I, I guess my point is I wish the same type of people that went to go see those movies and don't take them seriously at all, and or or if they do. Then that's a problem because they deal again with sex in a pretty un- and relationships in a very unhealthy way. And you don't have to um, be like you don't have to be. Like I wish a... I wish that they would see Professor Marston, the Wonder Woman, which or actually, yeah, or or hysteria or, or secretary or, or secretary or or, 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 or watch or just movie. watch the Master of Sex series. It, you know, or that, Kinsey. Yeah, uh, but uh, but yeah, so that's. That's why I wanted to get off on that. I mean, it's not like everything has to be like a, like a documentary about how sex is supposed to work, but I mean, like, no, no, because you do need those Fifty Shades of Grey films to be like, oh, here's something fun. Uh, but... I mean, you can have it fun. It, what the danger is when <gasps> when that becomes something that women really take seriously as, oh, I want a man like that. Well, I want a relationship like that. You, you can't stop people from making poor choices. Fair point. <laughs> that's what America's about. <laughs> you have the right I, I, to make as many ag- poor choices. I just don't want. agree with that idea of every every film needs to be healthy. No, no, no. It's not that. I just wish that like this movie is now gone. I think almost from theaters. It might be playing in a couple, but it, it played for maybe like a week or two, and oh. now it's not really. It's gonna be. It's not gonna be remembered the way that those other movies are, and it has a lot more. A lot. It has. Things to say it that has those a lot movies more can't valuable, get to. value than something like that. It has, and also just in terms of like how it's made. Like again, the performances are are really good, and especially near the end, because again, some of the things about his life, uh, like I didn't know that he died pretty young too. Which is spoiler. <laughs> yes, spoiler. If you, you prob- if, if you go to his Wikipedia page, you will be spoiled about the life and death of. But you probably could have stripped out that whole framing device, and the film would have been fine, right? It, they they probably would have had to deal with it, but I don't know. It's a good that's a good question. I don't know how you would have dealt with that. That's just something that I guess is just kind of part of the genre. I mean, maybe a rewrite could have helped it, but there was always like the biopic trope of you start when someone dies. That's what what Gandhi and Lawrence of Arabia did. Mm. Well, now it's and the then tr- you go back mm-hmm. and you start from the beginning. Well, now the trope is a little bit more like. I don't think the social network started this. I feel like there are other things that did, but that's something that, you know, we're going to have uh, the device be the uh, 
the the, the courtroom battle over Facebook rights the, or something. The big like that. moment of trial, the moment of yeah, drama. Exactly. Which is kind of well. Never mind. All right. So uh, anyway, we've talked. We've talked, we've about talked a lot about <laughs> that movie. Is there anything anything else recently you want to mention? Or well, I think that, we're... no, I didn't have time. I watched a five part documentary series. So fair, that was fair it. enough. Fair enough. Um, so if you've seen any of the things that we've talked about, if you're excited for like The Shape of Water or seeing The Black Lagoon, if you have uh, any other feature su- there, and if you have any other suggestions for future episodes, like uh, like Gabe did. Uh, Please make sure to always send us a message to wagescinema at gmail.com. And, uh, again, you can send us a message or right on our right on our wall uh, on our Facebook page uh, for the Wages Cinema podcast. We're on Twitter, so you can always tweet us very easily. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You can always please subscribe to us and write us a review on iTunes. Um, and, uh, yeah, when we come back, we're going to have, uh, for our 100th big episode blowout, we're going to talk uh, about our What the Devil is That movie. And uh, we might give you a little surprise after that, maybe? I don't know. Maybe? I'm kind of looking at you, and you're looking at me. Oh, you're asking me for an answer. I, I don't know. I'm not giving we'll you an see. answer. We'll, we'll see. So please stay tuned, folks. And, and again, thank you for listening and making this a, uh, you know, uh, you know, such a fruitful uh, thing that we do. So thank you. Our only concern is the asset. The Soviets want it. Do you have it? Sure, I'm getting it back. Did either of you see someone coming in or out of the lab? Nothing out of the ordinary. This is the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. How'd they get in here? We were looking at a highly trained group of at least 10 men. Efficient, ruthless, clockwork precision. I'm gonna be synchronizing our watches just like they do in the movies. Son, unfuck this mess. You deliver, that's what you do, you deliver, right? Right? If you know something you're not telling me, you're gonna tell me. We need to get him back in the water. Last time. Amazing. Listen, fellas. Sit down! He's coming for you. You gotta go now and you gotta take that thing with you.